Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, and he's visiting NYU's School of Law. Richard, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's always fun to be with you. Richard, our topic for today is our freedom to use our property, particularly land, as we see fit. How has that freedom fared in recent constitutional decisions? Um, well, the answer is not very well, but before one goes into an explanation, I think, of how things have declined, it's important to put some flesh around the proposition, freedom to use one's land as one sees fit. Um, there is a constant confusion, of course, between freedom and license, and in some cases, the freedom to use one's property, land, or anything else as one sees fit is subject to no limitations at all. So if I own a gun, I could use it to blow your brains out. Uh, I don't think there's any serious defender of laissez-faire who believes that there are no obligations with respect to the use of property, the chief one being not to use it as a means of aggression as against your neighbor. And in the case of land, trespasses are occasional, and they're generally easy-controlled. The more difficult problems are the softer externalities that are covered by the law of nuisance, filth, noise, stench, vibrations, whatever it is from one property to another. And when one starts to talk about the freedom to use one's land, there was always an implicit caveat that activities of that sort, which caused tangible, physical, invasive disruption of the property of a neighbor, were never included on the list of those things that you can do. Now, why would that be the case? And I think the answer is the same as it is for using guns to harm another individual. If both sides restrain from the use of these kinds of nuisance-like activities, each will gain in freedom more than he loses in the actions that he's allowed to take. And so what happens is a kind of a giant global trade in which everybody turns in their right to pollute everybody else in exchange for which they receive the right to use their property free of pollution. And if that's the baseline against which you're going to measure these things, there's been an enormous decline in the level of freedom of land because the nuisance law is regarded only as the baseline of limitations that you put on and the question is, what can you pile on on top of that? And here, Russ, if I can just continue for a second, uh, it's, again, a tricky subject. Land means that your neighbors, and whereas you can move away from your neighbor, your land cannot. And so the problems will be inherited by the person who buys it or takes it from you. So there are always these problems of adjacencies and conflict with respect to land. And in many cases, the kinds of restrictions that people would ideally desire between themselves often would go beyond the law of nuisance. And so the question is, how do you implement those additional restrictions? So, for example, if you're in a certain kind of district, everybody may want to have their houses made of a certain kind of stone so as to give a kind of nice aesthetic to the neighborhood. And that's an extremely difficult problem, and there's two ways to handle it. Uh, the first way to handle it is, in fact, one that's extremely congenial to libertarian thought, which is to say you get a single owner who owns a large parcel of land, divides it up, and then by a series of agreements called covenants running with the land, imposes additional restrictions on all the landowners. 
So everybody agrees that the house will have certain setbacks, certain kinds of window treatments, certain height restrictions, and so forth. And what you do is, as an owner, impose these things reciprocally, and everybody's to the better. How do we know that? Because if the restrictions were on net harmful, the owner of the property, when he sold it off, would get less from the sales than he would um, if he took them off. So if he's putting them on, he seems to think that the recipients of these benefits will, in fact, be benefited more than the harms that these same restrictions impose. So netting everything out for everybody, what you do is you put these things on and adjust the prices generally upwards. Some parts of land may be worth considerably less than otherwise. Those go down, and you sell them for less. So this system essentially is a very powerful way of giving notice to people and of controlling all these soft externalities. Um, when you have parts of land that are already built upon or parts of land which don't have common owners, it's much more difficult to impose that kind of a building scheme, and you have to do it through regulation. And that's where the trouble begins. Because I can think of some regulations, like those which prohibit signs jutting out over war-busy streets, which actually benefit all sign owners. But there's so many of these things which are done for anti-competitive purposes. I've got my supermarket on the west side of the road. You want to build one on the east side of the road. You know what I'm going to do, Russ? I'm going to zone your plot of land residential. And so you get the anti-competitive stuff that comes in. And it's that impulse to land use regulation, which for the most part the courts have not been uh, very aware of in urban settings. In rural areas, it turns out it's habitat protection, wetland protection, and so forth. And instead of buying the land or an easement to use the land in particular ways, the tendency is to always to regulate. And those two forms of regulation in these two settings have really set the land law completely up on it. On the zoning case, uh, where you use it for any competitive purposes, presumably there's there's a great deal of variety in how states and, and cities have used zoning laws. So we have some inf information about how often it's used for those purposes, how often it enhances, say, property values. Do, do we know anything about that? Um, people do. And first of all, the variation across states is, I would say, surprisingly small in terms of the willingness to tolerate these kinds of restrictions. They are basically freely allowed in most states in the United States. The question is, what's the value of land that's lost by, by, time, by this kind of zoning? And that's a trickier question to ask, because a lot of it depends on where you are. If you're in Fresno, California, or in the downtown Chicago area, where everything is flat, there are no natural elements of beauty or concern, um, usually the zoning is pretty rational. Um, there may be some anti-competitive zoning, but there's certainly not going to be environmental zoning. But in other areas, the environmental stuff is much more valuable, and so you'll see a lot of pressures that to be placed on that. Um, and in those circumstances, uh, you can see extensive wipeouts. And with the anti-competitive stuff, you could see it too. Essentially, the basic norm is, is it's much more striking than one might think. Uh, uh, many of these cases, the reduction in land value attributable to zoning for what I would regard to be improper purposes, without compensation, runs as much as 80 to 90% of the value of the land. So and you, that's a big number. That's a very large number. So you're suggesting you have a piece of property and a zoning regulation. Let, let me ask – actually, let me ask a clarifying question first since I don't sure. know much about zoning, and probably many of our listeners are in the same uh, ignorant boat that mm -hmm. I'm in. Uh, do zoning regulations tend to be uh, global or do they tend to be extremely local? That is, can you zone out a particular property? like you talked about in your example, can say, you know, I think this particular plot of land should be residential. 
Ah, it's so complicated, and and let me start going back. First of all, in terms of the authorities that impose zoning, it is a fiercely local activity um, with respect to zoning, unlike many forms of wetland controls, which can be done either at the state or the national level. There is a counter-doctrine against the general permissive use of zoning called the spot zoning rule, which says, in effect, that if you take a small plot of land and zone it in a way which is inconsistent with everything to its neighbors, that zoning is suspect. Spot zoning can go in two directions. On the one hand, the owner of the plot of land can go to the city council or to the zoning board and say, you know, everybody else around me is residential. Why don't you allow me to put in a commercial use? And he tries to get an advantage over everyone else. And the courts are usually pretty quick to strike that down. But on the other hand, when all the neighbors pick on the guy on the spot and say, you know, we don't want you to build anything, um, it's a little bit tricky and probably harder. Uh, if you look at a map, you know, think of a large circle and then think of a little circle inside of it and have the little circle keep getting larger and then ask yourself, how big does this little circle have to be relative to the big circle to count only as a spot? And sure enough, um, the permutations are infinitely in, infinite in variety and the doctrine itself is very difficult to administer. But there is, at least within the zoning tradition, a doctrine which says if you pick on one guy to the exclusion of everybody else who's similarly situated, then, generally speaking, there's going to be some higher level of scrutiny. But when you get to some of these complicated cases, you know, you've got the east side of the road and the west side of the road. The east side of the road may not just be a spot. They may say nobody on the east side of the road can build commercial, even though what they're aiming for is only the single guy who would build in competition with the fellow who has a shopping center on the west side. And so the cases become very difficult to disentangle. And generally speaking, courts are tired of getting themselves injected into zoning disputes. And so their attitude is, show me a really blatant abuse, or otherwise just don't bother me at all, and we will let this thing simply be governed by um, uh, whatever it is that the zoning plan calls for. Uh, so it's a complicated set of doctrine, but I would say that for the most part, um, once a zoning board makes its decision, or a zoning commission, consistent with something that is called a plan, it's going to be very difficult for any individual landowner to upend it. And what do you think should be the um, compensation, if any, for the, for the landowner who loses 80 to 90 percent of the value well, of the property? Well, in most of the cases, I think the compensation should be the full value of the diminution. There are occasionally cases where what happens is the restrictions in question are put on uses which could, in fact, result in traditional common law noxious behavior. So if you want to stop the construction of a Coke factory in a residential district because you know that the fumes are going to be extraordinarily strong, it seems to me that that should be done without compensation. But I think it's fair to say that virtually all the zoning cases that make it through the system into litigation have nothing whatsoever to do with nuisances today. Virtually all of them have to do with loftier environmental goals on the one hand or with the various questions of anti-competitive and restrictive zoning on the other. And it's ironic because many of our great cities, which have hodgepodge uses, which work very well together, could never develop today, given all the restrictions that there are with respect to the efforts to put new zoning provisions into place. Well, you're referring it. What? Excuse me. You're suggesting that compensation should take place. It, yeah. I assume it does not take place currently. Um, the general rule is, unless you quote wipe out all economically viable use of property, a phrase which is subject to much interpretation. The rule is the diminution in value is treated as though it's a competitive loss for which no compensation is required. 
And, and, you know, for people who've known economics, competition is something that we love. Regulation is something that we fear. The great achievement of the United States Supreme Court is to treat regulation and competition as though they are the same for legal purposes on the rather silly assumption that they have essentially the same global economic consequences. So your point is is that even though you might lose a significant fraction of the value of your property, uh, it's not considered a taking unless it's all Yes, uh, unless everything goes. And, of course, what does it mean to take everything becomes a term of art. Regulators <laughs> respond to danger like everybody else. So early on in this, say, 15 years ago, there was some movement to tell people in certain kinds of areas, you know, we're not going to allow you to build anything at all. You don't like it, tough. And there was a case called Lucas against the South Carolina Coastal Council in which what was said was, you know, that's a taking. Uh, you tell a guy he can't put anything on the land. So immediately every local zoning board, including the one in South Carolina, said, you know, this is just not the way in which to do these things. We're not going to prevent you from building anything. We're just going to put a series of roadblocks in front of you and restrictions upon you, both substantive and procedures, so as to delay the construction on the one hand and then to reduce its value to you on the other. And if we leave you some scintilla of value in the land from the construction right, then we think that we've met our constitutional duty. And so you get a large number of cases in the lower courts. The Supreme Court has never revisited this issue to figure out just how far you can go with these regulations before it's a de facto wipeout. And so the issue is one essentially playing a game of chicken. Uh, you know if you go this far, nobody's going to hurt you. If you go a little bit further, you get a little bit more, but you run a bigger risk. And so what happens is the equilibrium position now is if a plot's worth $100,000 in value and Somebody puts a series of impediments on it that knocks its value down to $20,000. Generally, you'll be okay. Go below 10%, and people will start getting very nervous. And so there's a funny kind of trapdoor effect. You could wipe out $80,000 worth of land use value for nothing um, and get whatever benefits the neighbors have. But if you go to 90%, now you have to pay $90,000. That last 10% movement at the margin costs you 90000 grand, so you don't do it. So there's a kind of a funny political equilibrium that exists given the way in which the rules have been articulated. When you say costs you, you mean costs uh, the, the, the regulators. In terms yeah. of compensation to pay yeah. the individual owner. Uh, you mentioned a hodgepodge. Uh, there are cities with no zoning. Is that correct? One or two. Isn't Houston? Um, no, is uh, Houston was. I don't even think it is anymore, but I'm not really up on it. Um, and in those cities, there is a more extensive use with respect to covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, I mean, you know, be careful, again. It's not as though every zoning ordinance you think of has got to be necessarily stupid. Um, some of them actually enhance value, and sometimes there are, of course, other restrictions on land use in addition to zoning, like you know the requirements for building permits and so forth, um, which are designed to deal with some real troublesome issues. So, for example, you want to build a large apartment house right next to a public street, and it turns out it's a small street, and if you add all your cars in there, uh, there's going to be terrible traffic jams. The question is, can they require you to put in off-site parking? Can they require you to expand the road in front of your house? Can they require you to have stop signs so that people just go barging out into the main street, maybe even to reroute the entrance to another location? I think all of those are within the pale of perfectly legitimate kinds of government responses, and it's kind of difficult to work them out except on the ground when you have the plans in front of you. Uh, it's only when somebody says, well, gee, you know, we don't think a shopping center belongs here, and you start building games with industrial policy that the things become very costly. And that's, remember I read wrote this little article, and this actually ties into the Kilo case in a very instructive way and the whole public use issue. Yeah, well, let's, we'll get to Kilo in a moment. I just want to, before we get there, I want to ask you one more question sure. about this anti-competitive aspect. And, you know, we can think of different 
uh, uses of zoning for non-attractive reasons. You've mentioned some already, This, particularly anti-competitive. The, the attractive part of anti-competitive zoning is that at least there's a party on the other side who has an incentive to fight back. Mm-hmm. It, it is a rent-seeking uh, activity on the part of, of, say, a city council to to threaten to zone a project, uh, a parcel in a particular way, but the person who wants to use that is going to is going to fight back. True, that's wasteful. All that back and forth with yeah, the city it's council. Also generally going to lose. Yeah, but at least there's a strong vested interest to, to fight it. I, I want to talk about a different kind of anti-competitive uh, mm-hmm. use of zoning and, and land regulation, which is the so-called. Uh, and I don't again. The so-called what? I was going to say the so-called anti-sprawl mm-hmm. uh, regulations that that some economists suggest have, and various other types of zoning regulations, have enhanced property values of current residents at the expense of would-be or potential or out-of-state or out-of-city residents. So it's a different uh, kind of um, uh, destructive use of, uh, potentially destructive, but certainly the people who uh, are voting for the city council members, they like it, whereas the other folks who aren't voting because they don't live there don't uh, don't get a say. Welcome stranger. I mean, the, the problem with zoning in many cases is it was designed to eliminate all these funny externalities between landowners that the law of nuisance doesn't take into account. But you can't get rid of one set of externalities without creating another. And so a lot of times, for example, there's even zoning which is strategically designed to make sure that industrial activities in your community has its highest negative impact by people in the community next door, and they turn around and try to do the same favor to you so that there are these kind of boundary line problems. There's also a huge problem with respect to the zoning of undeveloped land. And generally speaking, lots of people who live in a community like the low densities. It, it puts basically kind of amenities into their own hands. It reduces traffic and so forth. And many of them know that even if the property values go up, um, they're not going to sell, and they don't want to pay the higher taxes. And besides, their use value will go down even if the market value goes up. So what they do is they try to put very low-density uses on all the stuff elsewhere. Well, the developer in those cases is representing hundreds of people who would like to get out of really miserable neighborhoods, perhaps, and they can't find a way to get in there. And so there's this constant battle for the outsiders constantly coming in, where, in fact, markets always take into account non-territorial preferences. Political elections are essentially restricted to the local voters. And so that's the origin of the NIMBY problem, and it's a very, very serious kind of issue. Because in places like Seattle and in much of California, uh, if you really want to build, um, you're often confined to very narrow neighborhoods, very high densities, because people don't want you to go in areas where they like it um, lean and comfortable and exactly the way it is. And so, to keep you but one illustration, try to build a new house in Lake Tahoe, right? And there are a lot of plots around there, and what happens is the restrictions on building just get stronger and stronger and stronger, and they break down so that Steven Spielberg is somebody who's exceptionally rich will um, amalgamate several plots of land and build on it so that they get very low densities and, and very high tax revenues. Yes, there are all sorts of games like that which are constantly played. What would you do? To, should that be changed? And what would you do to change Well, that? I think what happens is if you follow the rule which says that you have to compensate the users of land um, or the owners of land when you restrict their uses in ways that don't implicate nuisances, all of a sudden this game will, will disappear because the people who are willing to impose a 80% restriction on the value of somebody else's land will probably gain 10% from their effort. It's big enough for them to do it, but if they had to put a price tag against it, 
uh, they would never indulge in those kinds of activities. So what happens is you have here a, a situation in which there is an enormous demand for regulation if it could be acquired at zero prices and there's a very short supply. And since this is the government moving, it's not that there's a shortage, it's just that there's an imposition. And by putting the prices on these things, the really important forms of regulation will survive because people will be willing to pay for it, but most of the other stuff will start to disappear. And, and the net effect on land values will increase, as will the mobility of the population and the level of development. And this will release pressure in neighborhoods that are overpopulated. If, for example, you take some place like New York, where the whole complicated effort to try and figure out how you get new development in this city is so acute uh, that everything in New York City, and you see this as a visiting resident, is driven by the absurdly high prices of, of apartments by virtue of the fact that nobody can expand the supply. Um, it's not just zoning. There are also permit requirements and environmental statements that have to be filed. So in a city of 8 million people, you may put up you know, enough new housing for 25,000 people a year. That just doesn't begin to touch the sorts of difficulty that one has. And uh, clearly, if you can change the process from one of participatory democracy, where the neighbors have a veto right on any particular project, which is a variation on the zoning theme, uh, to a situation which you could build as a right unless they condemn you out, what you do is you see much more development, and you could then regulate to control the traffic problems, but you could not regulate so as to make sure that people um, who don't want to see the character of their neighborhood changed um, are going to be able to veto anybody else without paying for it. It's a tricky problem, and of course the political economy of it isn't particularly hopeful. Because oh, no, it's a, it's <laughs> a, and if anything, I think the situation has actually gotten worse in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, the courts, even the conservative judges on this, simply regard zoning as something which has to be a political issue, and they look at the, the mess that's created, and they assume that any other system will have a bigger mess. I think that's probably wrong. Um, I think that the values lost through regulation are just huge. The values that are gained through regulation are probably an order of magnitude smaller than all of this. The political discord that's created by these constant efforts to block new projects from taking place is absolutely palpable. You go into any sort of community hearing on a new proposed high-rise, and there'll be a thousand people who explain why it is that you cannot let this building be put up there. Um, of course, the same objections could have been raised to the place that they had lived, that they had been, this regime had been in effect 20 years before, but they're always convenient about this. They forget the fact that they managed to survive in an environment where these regulations were not in place, and they assume that the great communities that were built under much less restrictive zoning laws would never get articulated and never developed. Uh, if you could change one thing, uh, what would you change? Well, I would change the rule on compensation with respect to land use restrictions and say that all diminutions in value are presumptively compensable um, unless you could show that you're preventing a bona fide common law nuisance or controlling a traffic problem. And the, those two exceptions are very important, but I would say most of the action does not involve them today. I guess even if that were in place, the, um, the other tools in the hands of, of local government are probably somewhat uh, – would, would reduce the value of that. In oh, you'd have to go cities. after those as well. The same thing with respect to permit denial. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to do it with respect to all land use restrictions, whether or not imposed in the form of a zoning order. I mean, all of this started in, in, in its modern form with the so-called case involving Penn Central, where they wanted to put a broyer tower on top of the Grand Central Station. And, and Justice Brennan said, you know, you want to stop them? You're not taking anybody's air rights. You're simply regulating a mayor land use, 
And it's not a spot zoning because it's a comprehensive city plan, even though the designation of this spot took place through a particular administrative hearing. And once that decision took place, then it became extremely clear that you could have very aggressive land use plans with lots of discretion in the hands of administrators, and the gains from a Broya Tower would be ignored, and they'd be very substantial, because there's somebody who thinks that the aesthetics along um, whatever it was, Park Avenue, are better if you only see the Pan Am building, or the MetLife <laughs> building, as yeah. it's now called, instead of seeing two towers. Um, visual externalities are very difficult to deal with, because some people will claim that they're always negative, but many people would regard a new tower, if it's tastefully done on top of an old building, as beautiful. Sure. On the other hand, when you put the Boland Soldier Field in Chicago, which was a public piece of property, um, that became absolutely horrendous. And not only that, it was an economic giveaway as well. So it, it was so bad in so many ways that it's really very painful as a Chicagoan to talk about. Can you drive by it without shedding a tear? No, I cannot. Okay. In fact, I actually work for the Landmark Preservation Council of Illinois, a private organization, in an effort to derail the effort of the city to go through this particular scheme, but we got nowhere in the courts. Uh, let's move on to Kelo. Uh, for those of us who are not constitutional lawyers, the um, case was a bit of a mystery to us. Uh, how did it? How did it pass? Uh, well, how Supreme did it Court? come out? The, the the public the problem that you have to do is as follows: the taking scores of the United States Constitution is short, but that doesn't mean it's easy to understand. And its central provision says, um, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. That's all it says. And Pretty the phrase is, what does it mean to take for a public use? And everybody agrees that you can take for a public use if you want to use a building for a school or a, a military fortress or a post office or for a roads. And then there's the question of what kinds of things count as public benefits that are also for public use. And that's a much more tricky sort of proposition. The early cases always allowed the government to take land when there was a real standoff. So I own a mine at the top of a hill, and the only way I could get my ore to the railroad track is to go over your scrubland. And given those holdout problems, the courts were willing to say that the guy who owned the scrubland had to yield and receive a little compensation for a tram running over his property. But with Kilo, what happens is as follows, is that once you start with the zoning game, nobody can put together large plots of land and make major urban developments because there'll be too many neighbors who are blocking. So what developers then do is they, they go to the people who block them and say, you guys want this thing, you give me a clean bill of health, you condemn all this property, you give it to me, and I will build. So that what happens is, oddly enough, once you have strong zoning regulations in place, like you did in New London, uh, then the only way you're ever going to get anything done is for the state to condemn the property and to give the developer a clean bill of health. Nobody will try to fight the system without the city on its own side. And that's what happened. And they wiped the things down. Now, in some cases, you could say, you know, I'm not real happy about it, but the compensation is okay. Uh, but in virtually all of those cases, what was being taken was vacant farmland. In one case, which I think was wrongly decided, what happened is you took the landlord's interest and conveyed it to the tenants in exchange for compensation. So nobody was moved out of their homes. Um, and in some cases, this has been used to clear up what they call urban blight, a term of art which nobody knows its meaning. But in Kilo, none of these things were around. These houses were, were not fancy, but they were perfectly serviceable and quite nice. Um, and it turned out there was no holdout problem. They had 90 acres of land that they could use for whatever purpose they wanted. And somehow or other, they decided they'd rather have 92 acres of land. Uh, and so they wanted to lay waste to these 13 or 15 homes. 
And in the Connecticut courts, the trial judge says, you know, I'm going to let you take the ones at the center of this new development plot, but the ones at the periphery, you don't need them at all. And so he basically said some of it went and some of it not. And when it got to the Connecticut Supreme Court and then to the United States Supreme Court, the basic attitude was, you know, we don't know anything about land use planning, so long as you call this quote-unquote comprehensive, we'll let you do it. And so for the first time, you saw in a kind of decided case ordinary homes of ordinary peoples being blown up in order to put nothing up in its place. The land is still vacant. Um, the houses are gone and the land is still empty. And people, you know, went really got mad at the thought that you could just take people out of their homes because you think you could put up something fancier. They didn't even know that these guys were so incompetent, the gang that so incompetent, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, that they weren't putting up anything at all. And they still haven't done it. And, you know, Justice Stevens, who allowed all this to happen, could never tell you what counted as a private use for which the eminent domain power would be inappropriate. So the situation where we stand now, and this is the thing to understand, is the zoning laws make it impossible unless you've got the city on your side to do anything which is large and ambitious in many communities. But once you get the city on your side, you can bulldoze everybody. You know, this is a case in which we either require people to sell, or on the other hand, we forbid them from selling. What you want to do is to have a regime which is more like the old common law regime, in which if a developer goes in and buys a bunch of plot of land, everybody in town can't block them from putting something new up unless they could show the traffic problems or the nuisance kinds of dislocations to which I referred. Um, it's a very far place from where we are today with participatory democracy, but I think on balance it's probably a place where we would see much more prosperity with respect to land use. And there's little doubt that the towns which are aggressive in both the condemnation side and in the regulation side are the ones which have the greatest difficulties in organizing their real property markets. The common law system is actually a better system than what we have today. How do we get where we are? Um, well, you know, there was a strong progressive movement. It's the same guys who believed in industrial policy, the same fellows who believe in unionization, same fellows who believe in minimum wages, the same fellows who believe that any time you have a private market, you have a private market failure. And sure enough, the same progressive tradition, which introduced all of the reforms in labor markets, became very active in the land use market at exactly the same time in the first third of the 20th century. But they're progressive. Well, progressive is their own <laughs> self-description. I regard it as regressive in the deeper sense of the term. But American land use policy today, like so much of American political economy today, is essentially at the constitutional level, basically organized by the New Deal precepts of Franklin D. Roosevelt. In politics, those principles have not always fared very well, and so certainly in industrial policy, there's been a retreat from unionization and, and some greater skepticism about minimum wage and maximum hour laws. The zoning stuff continues on fairly strong because, in fact, the externalities are larger and the price for the ideal regime is higher than it is anywhere else. So this is going to be the area where once entrenched, particularly with local interest and the inability to sort of avoid regulation by moving somewhere else, this thing has become really difficult. In some communities, it's just not a problem. They desperately want developers to come in there. Please, let us tell us what we can do. We want to increase our tax base. And so the system works in those cases where the zoning system is essentially not a serious impediment. But you take really important cities like New York and San Francisco and so forth, and you will find very extensive zoning regulations which completely royal housing and business markets. I mean, living in Manhattan and knowing how virtually 
the way in which you expand supply is to take an 800-room, 800-square-foot apartment and make it suitable for three people instead of two people uh, so that kids can live in this city and work here. That seems to be the, the path of least resistance because getting new stock into play is very, very different. Going back to Kilo, uh, what do you think is the uh, significance of the decision and the backlash against it? Well, I think the backlash is more important than the decision because now, as a political matter, the price of knocking people out of their own homes is higher. But again, Russ, you know, I'm going to have to go in a second, but the political economy line on this is, I think, pretty clear. Um, what happens is, in zoning, you're keeping out somebody who's not inside your community. In Kilo, you're displacing people who are members of your community. And there is always a greater local resistance to knocking people out than there is to keeping people who are not in from coming in. So um, more local governments seem to have been more cautious about their use of the zoning power post-Kilo than had been previously the case. Yeah. And that strikes me as being predictable and, and an entirely welcome development. I just don't see any reason why we would want to celebrate the, um, uh, the other situation in which we have these sort of massive forms of government regulation. But it's a very long road before one dismantles local land use government. Uh, it turns out many Republican types are proprietors of suburban, suburban communities. They don't want to relax the restrictions. If you change land use restrictions and ease things up, what it does is it alters the base with respect to um, with respect to a whole variety of decisions having to do with education and schools and other kinds of things, so that the whole market itself is one of immense complexity. Local government and the multiple levels of local government is a very tough nut to crack. And unless there's some judicial effort to provide opportunism, either by communities against individual owners within their neighborhood or one community blocking people from a nearby community through the courts, you're going to have this kind of balkanization and frustration for a very long time to come. It's, I think, a constant drag on the American economy. Uh, you know, if you're trying to think of three things that you'd want to get right or four things you'd want to get right, free trade in the international market would probably be number one. A sensible flat tax system would be probably number two. A coherent market-based system of employment law would probably be number three. And a sensible set of land use regulations would probably be your number four. Well, one for four isn't bad. It sometimes gets you a major league uh, career. Okay. Uh, to hitting 250. Yep. Yes, now, sir. But, you, but you know, you'd like to bat a thousand on this one. And I agree with you. Now, do you have to run right now? I actually have to go to a meeting in a second or two. I could take one or two more questions. Okay. Uh, your colleague, uh, Lior Strahilovitz, uh, gives a theoretical example on the uh, University of Chicago law blog of a nihilist buying a Frank Lloyd Wright house and burning it to the ground. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that the government would be justified taking the house via eminent domain and transferring it to a preservationist group. Uh, what do you think of that? Um, that's, that's exactly what eminent domain power is for. I mean, I think for the most part, you would see very little, very few instances where owners take property of immense value and, and want to destroy it. But in fact... If somebody telegraphs a private use which is destructive, you could do it very nicely. You could say, you know, what's the value of the property if you want to burn it to the browns? That's what we'll pay you, and then we'll keep it for the benefit of everybody else. I don't have any real kind of problems with doing that. Uh, but the interesting thing is the condemnation alternative means that now the government has to run it, and I would even allow them to sell it off or give it away under some kind of competitive arrangement to a conservation organization that would respect the easements. 
because I think the government is a lousy caretaker of all these properties. Um, one of the real difficulties with landmark preservation statutes is they prevent somebody from ripping things down and from changing it, but they don't require them to maintain it so the buildings deteriorate. Uh, particularly if they don't have any viable economic use. Do you think those historical – my impression is the historical preservation folks uh, are an enormous drag on dynamism in, in most cities. Um, and they wield a lot of power. Is that um, true or not? I think those who run the system are. I think there are many private organizations that try to get voluntary preservation easements who do a lot better job. Mm-hmm. So it's all complicated again. I mean, there's always this, this endless interplay. Um, as I, I actually worked with a private um, – um, preservation organization for several years, the Landmark Preservation Council of Illinois, and there were lots of libertarians who were involved in that organization because they saw exactly what you can do um, if you made intelligent deals. Uh, the Landmark Preservation Commission, which is the official body in Chicago, has a much more rigid and dogmatic approach to everything, and I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them you on see? any difficult question of land use design. They have very weird opinions, and they can just simply block building permits unless you comply with them. You want to say anything about public property and national parks? Yeah, I'll say a word or two about that. These are a different kind of problem. The Constitution is a very bad document in terms of trying to control the way in which the state uses, quote-unquote, its own property. And the reason the issue is so incredibly difficult is that a private landowner sees a property which has multiple inconsistent uses and is constantly trying to figure out how to walk the line between one use and another in order to get the maximum value out of the land. And so they're always making compromises and trade-offs. In the political system where the government owns the property, these trade-offs become pitched battles between those groups that want snowmobiles in the park and those which think that they're dreaded. And they can't seem to work out any kind of compromise because it's very difficult for them to buy and sell with each other. And so one of the strong arguments in favor of privatizing the whole lot is that you'll get some serious bargains in which the kinds of natural uses will be traded off against the recreational uses in a way which seems to make some degree of sense. Private landowners do this all the time. You're building um, a forest in order to harvest trees, and you've got 20 years before you can knock them down. Well, you'll let the thing out to recreational groups in the interim, and you put certain kinds of restrictions on them. You're the Audubon Society, and you love to preserve natural habitat, but you've got oil underneath your land, you'll let them drill, subject them to very serious restrictions on how they can do it, and receive a somewhat smaller royalty. And those mixed uses are extremely difficult to take out of public lands. So, I mean, I'm always in favor of trying to figure out how to privatize the public land, but again, this is such an intensely political kind of situation that I don't see much hope for some serious use on this subject. And the, and the, and the abuses on this are absolutely rampant. You know, the, the forest service will knock down anything if it wants to build the road, and it doesn't have to pay much attention to the sort of the cultural values that may be lost to various kinds of Native American tribes. So the whole situation with respect to land use is, I think, highly, highly, highly um, uncertain and tenuous, and it's a serious, serious problem. Uh, I think that many groups are now aware of this and are trying to work constructively to make it better. But you have huge bureaucracies at the state and federal level, sometimes at the local level, to deal with this. And there are all sorts of overrides having to deal with various kinds of preservation groups for environmental purposes and other kinds of government statutes and mandates, dealing with endangered species and wetlands and so forth. And these are extremely aggressive constituencies. So I, I don't put much hope for, for massive improvement in this particular area. I don't think that you will see a, a considerable decline from the current level. 
Um, but I don't see that you will actually get more out of these things because I don't think there's any political agreement that can be reached, and so the logjams will essentially prevent any sensible development or redeployment of public assets. Do you think our freedom to use our land as we, quote, see fit is a threat to the rule of law, or is it um, relatively unimportant? I think it's a, to use land as we see fit, I think that's perfectly consistent with the rule of law, so long as you respect the restrictions that the rule of law imposes upon harm to neighbors. I think the current situation invests immense discretion in the hands of public officials so that if I get a permit to build on my land, its value goes from 100 to a $1 million. And if you don't get a permit on yours, it stays exactly where it was. The ability to dispense permits without any real firm criteria of who should get what and why is an immense threat to sort of organized uh, political life. And I think with respect to use rights, we don't have a rule of law. I think we have a rule of arbitrary and capricious behavior for which there's very little recourse in the courts. My guest today has been Richard Epstein, the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Richard, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be there. Take Thanks. care. Take care. And I hope we talk again soon on something else. You bet. Bye-bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.